Welcome to the Gamer's Tavern, episode 16. Uh, yeah, Ross is about to say it's episode 15, but again, last week I mentioned this, there were some audio issues, so we had to swap around the order. Uh, we've gotten everything sorted, which is a good thing because there is a lot of good content here. Uh, we have two amazing guests, Colin McComb and returning guest, Daryl Hardy. And Daryl especially deserves some congratulations because... We actually recorded this a month ago to the day, and since we recorded this, and today, uh, there is a new addition to the Hardy household. Another little gamer has joined the Hardy clan, uh, so we would like to re wish Daryl and his family congratulations on their new addition. Uh, and I also have to issue an apology to you, our listeners. Uh, there were, again, audio issues with this episode, the biggest one is one I didn't find out about until I was editing it because about an hour in Colin McCombs uh, audio feed I believe the technical term in audio engineer circles is goes batshit crazy it you can still hear what he's saying for the most part but it, it does sound horrible and I did my best to clean it up and there's only so much you can do and I do apologize for the quality but yeah there's only so much you can do to make up for it go ahead and head over to the bar first rounds on me grab a drink and then take a seat at the table in the corner and we'll be right back after this word from our sponsor Hello gamers, I'm Daryl Mott Jr. from Anacool News Tabletop and the Gamers Tavern Podcast, which you probably know because I'm betting I was just talking a second ago. I'm sure you already know about DriveThruRPG as it is the biggest repository for digital copies of your favorite games. Dungeons & Dragons, Shadowrun, Battletech, World of Darkness, Numenera, Fate, and so many more. And sometimes there are pennies on the dollar because, face it, PDFs can sometimes be so much more convenient than print copies, but if you need print copies, they sell those too. So if you want to support the Gamers Tavern podcast, click on the affiliate links in the show notes and check out Drive Through RPG. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Gamers Tavern. I'm your host, Ross Watson. And I'm Daryl Mott Jr. And tonight we have with us two very special guests, uh, Mr. Daryl Hardy and Mr. Colin McComb. Hello, this is Colin. And this is Daryl. Thanks for, so much for coming on the show with us tonight, guys, because we have a really big topic. We're going to talk about world building, and it was really hard for me to think of anyone more qualified to talk about world building than the two of you. Thank you. Sorry, I just had just had an interruption. What was that again now? <laughs> <laughs> Say it again, I, Ross. Say I, know, it again. I, was saying, I was saying thank you for coming on the show to be uh, with us tonight because there's no one I can think of more qualified to talk about world building than the two of yourselves. Oh, man, I missed out on that. I, feel, <laughs> I'm, I am a terrible person. I apologize. I was getting, uh, getting a... Uh, it, it's not important. I thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, the, one of the first things we're going to do is we're going to make sure the listeners know who you are. And here in the Gamers Tavern, the thing we'd like to do is to ask you for your gaming 
character sheet. Now, Daryl Hardy's actually been with us before, so I'm going to start off with him so he can give us, you know, just sort of a quick recap, and then we'll dive into yours, Colin, because you have a pretty extensive character sheet, and I want to make sure the listeners hear the whole thing. So, Mr. Hardy, if you would, tell us briefly about your character sheet as a gamer. All right. I'm a level 12 uh, freelance writer and game designer. Uh, We're doing levels, right? You know, it can be level, it can be archetype, it can be whatever you want. <laughs> okay. Multi-class. You know, it, and, could be, uh, it could even be diceless if you want to, you know, go true heretic. <laughs> Let's not get dangerous here. <laughs> All right. Uh, writer and game designer in tabletop and video games. Uh, most, very most recently, I uh, released the My Little Pony CCG that I helped design. Uh, that's, a, that's an actual physical tabletop product. Before that, I've done other tabletop RPGs for Dark Skull Studios and online collectible card games for uh, Sony Online Entertainment and others. Uh, that's me, uh, shortly. Uh, well, I think Keeping I just want to add really quick that you also have a very uh, interesting blog about world building. It's called uh, Story World Development, is that right? Uh, yes. Well, okay. I mean, the, the, the blog is DarylHardy.com, right. but uh, Story, Story World creation is a recurring theme there. Okay. Excellent. Thank you very much, sir. And Mr. Colin McComb, uh, would you please tell our listeners what your gaming character is like, what they know you from, and where they can find you on the web? Well, sure. Uh, I guess since uh, I'm doing Numenera stuff these days, I would be, uh, I guess I'll call myself a charming jack who casts nets of words. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Nice. I have been... Careful, it's starting to sound like a bard. <laughs> well, yeah, except I have absolutely no musical talent. It's, it's actually pretty sad. Um, anyway, so... Uh, Me too, that's why I play punk music. That's why I play keyboard. People are like, oh, you play piano? I'm like, no, I mean, I type. And they're like, <laughs> eh, thank you, you guys are the first ones who've ever given me a laugh on that one. Everybody else is just like, ah, you suck. <laughs> Um, so I've been uh, I've been gaming since about 1980 uh, from the original uh, from the original Blue Box D and D, and I got into I got into uh, designing games straight out of college actually with my philosophy degree. I was the first one to actually get a job out of college, which was nice. Everybody who was saying, "Oh, you want fries with that?" It's like, "Yeah, here's the fries, bitches. Like this, I got a job." <laughs> you um, heard it here first. Colin McComb is the very first person ever. To get a job out of college. <laughs> yes, this is why I, this is this is why I have an editor with a philosophy degree, no less. Um, so I uh, I started working at TSR uh, in 1991, um, and I started off with Dragonlance stuff, and they quickly shoved me onto other things. I wound up uh, uh, co-creating the Birthright campaign setting. Uh, yeah. With Rich Baker. Uh, and then I went on to do even more development work uh, on the Planescape campaign setting, and it was that work that got me noticed by Interplay Productions, which had three computer games uh, with the Planescape license in the, uh, you know, at the time. Uh, so they hired me away to be the lead designer on one of those. Uh, two of those got canceled because I realized, holy shit, we're doing three, three computer games <laughs> with this license. That's nuts. <laughs> So they canceled two of them, and they rolled me onto Planescape Torment, uh, where I worked with Chris Avalone for you know the remainder of my time at Interplay. After that, I went freelance for a while, uh, and then got back into the computer gaming industry hardcore uh, with uh, work on Wasteland 2, um, which I did a couple of years ago. I don't, 
Jesus, was it only last year? Yeah, it was only last year. Time flies. Yeah. Uh, and shortly after that, um, Brian Fargo, the owner of an exile, uh, called me up and said, Colin, how would you like to be the creative lead for this new torment game? And I said, I would love that so much. I just wet my pants. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, Colin, I, the reason I, I wanted to make sure and get you on the show for this particular topic is, uh, as any listeners of the show know, I'm one of the biggest birthright fans since ever been ever. Um, but on top of that, uh, you also designed, as you said, Planescape, which is just really, really unique and distinct as a as a world. Um, but I think possibly your least known foray into world creation in the RPG world was Thunder Rift. Yeah, I loved Thunder Rift. And I do too. And I talked about it actually pretty recently in our, our discussion um, about basic Dungeons & Dragons. And uh, I have a quick story I want to share about that because the day I bought Thunder Rift at the store. I bought it at Walden Books, and I also shopped for novels at the same time. So I bought my adventure, or I bought, in this case, my campaign setting, and I bought a uh, a BattleTech book on the same day because I really liked BattleTech at the time. And I went up to the counter, and can you guess? I don't know if you know, but there's a book called Decision at Thunder Rift, and it is a <laughs> BattleTech oh, yeah. book. So the guy at the counter is like looking one. at these two things, and he's like, one of them has a wizard on it, and the other has giant <laughs> robots on it, and he's like. Are these related? And I'm like, no, but they could be. Like, the next thing out of my mouth was like, man, wouldn't it be cool if, uh, you know, Battletech's in Thunder Rift. But um, so there you go. I thought that would be a funny story in case you didn't know about it. I, I was actually kind of hoping that you had melded them together. That would have been a really awesome story. Uh, you know what? Honestly, I've never been able to run a game in Thunder Rift, but I've always wanted to. So it's on my to-do list of things eventually to do is to run a game uh, set in Thunder Rift. Um, Thunder Rift did teach me one very important thing about world building. And, you know, I would like to just add that this was, I think, probably the third product I had ever, like, officially designed for TSR. But, you know, they... You know, they gave me the big map sheets. I'm like, holy shit, I'm working with David Sutherland and Diesel, and oh my god. <laughs> you know, I, I this is just, I my first day at TSR, you know, Zeb Cook and Jeff Grubb walked into my office. They're like, let's go get some lunch, new guy. <laughs> I was like, cool. uh, yeah. Wow. It was, I, it was just, it was, I was like, holy shit, I'm actually doing this. Oh, wait, are we allowed to swear on the show? Yeah, Fuck you're yes. allowed to swear. It's, you know, okay. it, it's, it's, uh, it's allowable. Okay, good. You know, I, I didn't want to have to get beeped out or anything. So anyway, so I'm sitting there and I'm drawing this map and I'm all really proud of it. I mean, it was it was basically, you know, the best map I've ever done in my professional life, probably. Uh, I, I burned out pretty early on that. Um, so anyway, I've got this, uh, this, this map done out and I pass it over to Diesel and, and Dave Sutherland and, you know, they're looking at it and they're drawing it all up and I'm like, yeah, it looks really good. And I think it was Diesel. He's like, yeah, there's just one problem. I was like, what's that? He's like, well, when rivers flow, they flow together. They don't split apart. And I was like, ah, oh, you got to be kidding me. So if you look at the Thunder Rift map, you'll notice that the rivers don't actually make any goddamn sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in a, in a fantasy setting, geographical truth is one of the probably last things I worry about, honestly. But there you go. That's probably true, but for some people it might be a total immersion breaker. Geologists pick it up and they throw it across the room. This thing's a piece of shit! <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the next thing we're going to do, before we jump into like the full meat of our topic, uh, is we're just going to briefly talk about like what we've been playing lately. 
Um, and again, I think again, I'm going to start with uh, with Mr. Mott and then into Mr. Hardy and then end up with you uh, as well, because again, it's likely that you're going to be playing a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mr. Mott, what have you been playing lately? I have recently been playing a kickstarted game from uh, Stonemeyer Games. I want to say it's called Euphoria. Uh, I haven't had a chance to run it with my friends yet. I've just been kind of playing around with it, trying to learn the rules on my own. Uh, what it is, it's a worker placement game where each player runs their own sort of 1984 Big Brother-inspired dystopian world. And it's very Art Deco design, so it's got a, a lot of Bioshock influence in it as well. And the goal of the game is to get as many victory points as you can by accomplishing as much as you can without letting your workers know too much because if they know too much and start to see behind the curtain, they'll abandon you. And so you'll lose your points because you don't have workers to get points. So you have to have a little balancing act in there and it's a really cool mechanic. And I'm, I'm really dying to try it out. Cool. Uh, what about you, Mr. Hardy? What have you been playing lately? Well, uh, I've been playing hotline, hotline Miami on the, uh, on the computer. Well, I was going to say, is, is that like a board game like Dream Phone or something like that? <laughs> Dream Day? No, it's, it is... Uh, I mean, you stick it in, in the lo-fi, top-down shooter genre, uh, but it's brutal. Uh, one shot will generally kill anybody, including you, and you the, the movements of the enemies are somewhat randomized. You can't just memorize the level. And the whole thing is just drenched in 1980s neon with this... Uh, you know, throbbing Miami Vice techno soundtrack. It's it's really quite the package. Um, and Sounds cool. It, yeah, I recommend tracking you know, down some YouTube videos. Um, tabletop, uh, we're playing Star Wars Saga System. Uh, my gaming group, apparently, uh, before I joined, had a fantastic time with, with Saga System a few years ago. And so when the new Star Wars came out, they started talking about it, and they're like, yeah, that sounds cool. But remember that stuff we used to do with Saga? That was so awesome. We should do that again. And so they put the put the Edge of the Empire back on the shelf and, and dug out their square books and uh, rolled up some Jedi and turned out really incompetent. So <laughs> there's, so there's one thing I did really like about Saga that I don't think um, many games have gotten into since then, but it's the idea of the reputation system. And the fact that if you wanted to, you could actually start out with a bad reputation and use it. You could, you know, having a bad reputation didn't mean that you couldn't do things. It just meant you did different things differently than the, the good reputation guys. Okay. Well, I haven't, I haven't run into that yet, so I don't know if it's... Um, well, maybe that's pre-Saga. Maybe that was the D20, but okay. That, that could be. That could okay. be. I, I, I'm pretty new to it, so I'm, I'm sure there are nuances that I've simply overlooked. And Mr. McComb, what have you been playing lately? Uh, let's see. Tabletop, I've been pretty much sticking with uh, Numenera for role-playing games, uh, obviously, you know, because of the whole Torment thing. Um, but when we get together with uh, the other geek parents in Gross Point, we play uh, Settlers of Catan, we play, uh, let's see, what is it, Seven Wonders, Pandemic, you know, all the uh, all the good Euro games. Um I keep on trying to, you know, I keep threatening the kids that I'm going to bust out the Pathfinder Beginner box, but they wind up uh, grabbing the iPads. And <laughs> yeah, Pathfinder Beginner box is a great well, product, can... though. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it looks really nice. It's just that you know I, I can't really shut them down. They say, Dad, we'd like to play computer games. I can't be like that's wasting your mind. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you might try easing them into it with the Pathfinder Adventure card game. 
Oh, that, you know, if it were still available for sale, but it's sold out everywhere, isn't it? Uh, it might be just for Christmas, and they're waiting for a new printing, because uh, the Beginner's Box is sold out right now, too. They're reprinting it in March. Wow. Yeah, I, you know, I'd like to, get, I could get the kids started with Cards Against Humanity, but I think they might be a little oh. young. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would be, I finally uh... got my last piece of the holiday bullshit in today. It's the, the, I didn't get them in order, so I ended up getting the funny pages, which is like this newsprint comic strips that you got all these webcomic artists to do, but it's like old school Sunday newspaper comics, oh. and it's really awesome. But the capper was what should have come on the 12th day, which is the last one. I now have in my possession a Cards Against Humanity card, printed professionally, matches the set perfectly. It's a white card, and it says, Daryl Mott. <laughs> That's probably the worst thing that you could have in a, in a in Cards Against Humanity deck. I can, I can see that. Combine <laughs> that with a Bukaki show, and you're just... Ooh, Whoa! Ooh, yeah, hey, I didn't, I didn't mean to imply anything. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Um, okay, well, it's going to be escalated quickly. Uh, I think. Um, so, well, Cards Against Humanity was involved, so of course. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Um, so, anyway, uh, computer games. I've been playing. Uh, I've been playing uh, Bioshock Infinite because uh, Chris Avalon recommended it so highly, and I've been enjoying the hell out of that. Uh, just been playing the the DLC that came out. That was fun. Um, we got my kids uh, Steam accounts for Christmas, so we're playing Portal Two together. Uh, joint oh, testing initiatives. Yeah, it's it's great. Uh, and then I'm playing the hell out of the Wasteland 2 beta, which is also just a pile of fun. It's uh, total old-school gaming. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that when that finally uh, gets full release. I'm definitely going to be a, a, a buyer. Well, tell me what you think of the Coliseum when you get there. Okay, I sure will. But for myself, uh, I've been playing some uh, tabletop-wise. It's been really rough because of the holidays. At the time of this recording, it's actually only a couple days before Christmas. And as you know, getting people who have families and schedules, you know, to line up for tabletop in this few weeks is really, really tough. So um, I've kind of got my head in, in uh, Malifaux right now, which is uh, actually a, a miniatures game. But it's related to tabletop RPG because it's, it's, it has to do with uh, Through the Breach, which is the Malifaux RPG that I'm also working on. Um, so there's that. Uh, video game wise, I, I'm doing something I said I wouldn't really wouldn't do, uh, uh, because I, I had, I had been, uh, I'd been one of those people that didn't want to play Mass Effect 3 when it came out. I was so deeply, uh, dis disappointed with, uh, what I'd heard about it. So I decided to give it a try, and, uh, so I'm, I'm working my way through Mass Effect 3, and I'm finding it to be maybe not as bad as I'd thought, but I certainly am seeing some, some flaws that uh, I think I would probably like to discuss maybe in my blog at a future point, but, uh, so that's what I've been up to. Yeah, Mass Effect Three uh, is, I, you know, Bio Bioware is really good at what they do. You know, I've gotten in trouble. Well, they had been for yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, they're 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 professionals. They you know they know what they're doing when they when they put this stuff out. So you know, I think uh, I think that was just a case where they maybe bit off a little more than they could chew. I think we could probably have a whole show dedicated to to Mass Effect Three. Um... Uh, and and certainly uh, even just like game endings because uh, I am still going to give although I I think Chris is a brilliant writer and brilliant game designer I'm still going to give him crap for the end of Neverwinter Nights too. <laughs> Let it go, man. Let it go. You know what? In case you're not aware, I mean, and spoilers, but in case you're not aware, the ending of Neverwinter Nights two is literally rocks fall and everyone dies. 
<laughs> and it's kind of like a what? You know? <laughs> uh, so you can blame that one on Chris. But uh, anyway, let's get into actually our topic. Let's talk about world building. You know, it's probably the good thing to start with. Like, let's talk about, you know, the question, answering the question. Uh, and I'm going to pitch this to, let's say, Mr. Hardy first. Uh, Mr. Hardy, what do you think is world building? If someone asked you, like, what is it? Well, I think I, I would have to ask them, you know, what do you mean? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? What what, is well, what do you mean by that? And, and the reason, reason I say it. I wish why, for more wishes. Right. Uh, and, and that's why... I, I have, I, I call it the most pretentious business card in the world, because uh, I, <laughs> one of the, I say, uh, writer, game designer, and story world architect. Like, really? Well, well then, uh, because world building can be, uh, can be lots of things. I mean, in the, in video games, there are people who are professional world builders, and they're like experts in in Maya and ZBrush, and uh, you know, in, in crafting 3D things. Uh, then there's in and some of them are also you know, very good at you know setting up. Okay, we need you know point of interest here. We need a uh, you know, kind of laying out the like very large level design. Well, I think um, I, I'm sorry, but yeah. I, and I mean no disrespect to people who are level designers because that is a a challenging oh, yeah. craft. But I would I would argue that level design is is a separate skill from world building. Yes, yes, I I I agree. <laughs> I, I think that's much more specific, but it seems to me it could be something a little bit more closer to uh, adventure design in terms of trying to compare uh, video games to tabletop. Sure, sure, but the uh, I, th I think the, the heart of a world building, like like we're talking about, uh, is creating a, a setting for other people to play in. I mean, obviously, there's, there's world building you can do just for yourself. If you're like an author, and this is your your world, you know, where you create the uh, the setting, the characters, the conflict, uh, giving, you know, making sure you, that you have enough to, um, you know, to, to work with. Well, actually, I guess you, I guess it doesn't have to be large enough for other people to play in. That's just that, that's me with my with my uh, story world conceit. But uh, you know, I think it's fair for the purposes of our discussion. We are all talking about role playing games and world building and role playing games. So, I mean, if sure. if you want to establish one of the baselines, and if I understand what you, what you're saying correctly, is you're saying part of world building is it has to be where other people can play in it, right? Yes. I think that's a very right. reasonable and excellent point. Right. I think you give them enough enough tools that they can they can work with it, uh, enough enough guideposts they can find their own way around in it. Large enough that they that they can that they can play with it, but not so limitless that they might as well just do it themselves. Okay, good answer. Um, <laughs> Eventually, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. McComb, what do you what would you say if someone asked you what is world building? I would say pretty much the same thing Daryl said. Actually, I would say actually if you want me to be really concise about it, I would call it just creating a shared imaginative space self-contained I guess a shared self-contained imaginative space in which people can then build stories together um, with or without the intercession of a GM you know they it depends I guess on whether or not you're building a product line around it as well but ordinarily I would say it's just a place where people can get together and tell the stories okay that's an excellent answer too uh, Mr. Mott what would your answer be Probably the same as Colin and Daryl's. 
All right. Well, the show's over. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was good. To try to rephrase a little bit to be a little bit more of what I would say, uh, world building is basically creating the playground for people to go run into. It's a lot of fun. I've done a lot in my games where I've created my own campaign settings for my games instead of running something pre-built. But I've never done it on any sort of professional level, so I'm probably going to be asking a lot of questions because I'm really wanting to learn more about how to do it properly. But it, it's about creating... You're starting off with a completely blank canvas, and you're wanting to basically balance out how much of that canvas you fill out so that you have room to expand later on, but you still have established things in it. You still have a setting, you still have characters, you still have cities and whatever you have in that particular genre, you've got enough to start from. It's That's what you're trying to do, is build an entire world and give players room to grow, but still have a shared understanding of what the world is. You know, what's interesting is, uh, I, I think I think it was great that you all gave an answer, but you also kind of all said, well, what, you know, what he, what the other guy said. It's the same, you know, the same kind of, of answer. Because that is actually a great segue into the next question I was going to ask. Well, and, and I'll, I'll rephrase it in the, in the form of uh, my own experience as a designer who, who creates worlds and, uh, and so forth. How, what, how do you guys feel about taking other people's ideas and repurposing them for your own setting? In what context, I guess? Well, okay, well, let's, I, let's, I, let's, yeah. let's be clear. We're not talking about outright plagiarism. Sure. We're talking about adaptation. I, I will talk about that for a moment because... It's one of the big splits in what I do in terms of world building and what you three do in terms of world building is that I'm running a home game. I can steal whatever the hell I want. <laughs> and I do constantly because it is easy. It's a shortcut. It's something that the players would know. It gives them sorts of familiarity with the setting immediately. But there's also ways of borrowing stuff and kind of filing off the serial numbers. For example... Originally, Gary Gygax wasn't allowed to use the word Hobbit. So he kind of filed off the serial numbers and they became halflings. It still gave you the same feel of what you had in The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings when it comes to Hobbits, but it wasn't technically a Hobbit. I I like it. I, I, think, I think it's very inspirational in terms of taking... I can't think of any concrete examples offhand, but let's say you want to do... Uh, something that's really not that doesn't really work. So let's say uh, I'm going to take my inspiration from Harry Potter and apply it to my oh, a, a cursed a cursed campaign. Oh, to, well, you can certainly you know, do that. Just to kiss ass a little bit. Uh, <laughs> <clears throat> and I mean, like, what you know, magical? That, that there there really are no parallels. You know, so you can't you can't just file the serial numbers off and drop it in. And go, hey, we're going to go to this magical school. Like, okay, well, what would that be? in this world overrun by forces of darkness and, and witches and stuff. I'm like, well, maybe it's this uh, enclave in the that the Blood Witch is has set up <laughs> for her own amusement. And they're, you know, so basically, once you start, you know, forcing the parallels, uh, you know, like, well, if that's the case, then, then what would, uh, what would a, what would Quidditch look like? Or something, well, clearly it wouldn't be Quidditch. It would be, you know, and so, and so by the time you get done, Sinking up the things, what you end up with looks nothing like what you started with, which is good because you don't want it to be, you know, just recognizable. Uh, but I think it's a good because again, just you know, looking at a blank slate, going, uh, must create something cool here. Uh, 
But whereas you can say, okay, let's, let's take some inspiration from something that is, that is cool and then work from that rather than from a blank slate. Well, I'm, I'm going to just quickly push back a little bit. I mean, I think, I think you're coming from the right perspective. I really like what you said there. But at the same time, I'm going to push back a little bit when you say things like it shouldn't be recognizable. I think mm-hmm. there's ways to do it as a homage and, there, and, there, and to make it recognizable where it's still, it, it's, it's still not like, as we said, it's not plagiarism, but it's clearly still something that people can recognize and go, oh, that's, this adventure is just like Die Hard. Isn't that cool? Even though it's not taking place in Nakatomi Plaza and we're not talking about Bruce Willis, right? Sure. You know, sure. there's just there's, there's ways to make it recognizable, I think, that still enhance the experience rather than take away from it. Well, I don't know. I I think, uh, you know, I'm going to argue on Daryl's side here. I think that it is even better to file it down just past that point so that people can be like, oh, this is kind of like, but they're not going to be like, okay, well, now's the bit where I, you know, go shove the terrorist down the uh, elevator shaft with a bunch of C4 strapped to him. Well, yeah, homage is... Homage is, is different enough. No, damn it. You meant... <laughs> <laughs> How dare you, sir? Um, but I would like to get back to the whole point of Hogwarts in, in your world, which is that I think it would be a cool coven, or like a uh, almost like a witch's coven. You know, all the, uh, you know, the hunters essentially put their kids here to train from the best, and Quidditch then becomes a training exercise. You know, it's a war game at that point for them. It's more and like Ender's Game almost. Exactly. Ooh, I, you see, now that's that would be a fun thing to you know even riff off a little bit there. See, so so Darren, Darren just threw you that one as a freebie. Well, I, sorry, Daryl, Daryl threw you that one. And as that's a and that's where I'm coming from is I think you know if you take it and you're you're riffing off of it, you're to use a musical term, you know you're you're taking that that idea and you're doing something cool and interesting with it without copying it exactly. Exactly. If if, if you're copying it exactly, then it just becomes you know you might as well just you know, rip the pages out of the book and stick them in there. Hey, Ma, look what I wrote. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, you know, I artists, if I may be so arrogant as to call our assembled little gathering here a bunch of artists, you know, I mean, artists have always taken inspiration from other people. It's, you know, it's the whole conversation of, of industry moving forward. You take, you know, you look around at what other people are doing, you say, oh, man, that's really cool. I wonder if I could do something like that, but change it a little bit for my sensibilities. And I think I think that is absolutely a legitimate thing to do. Um, you don't you don't want to be the you know the person who's like oh yeah and look I've got this albino with a uh, with a soul drinking sword and you're like ah oh, get out of here you suck. But you know you can do, well, you can I've do got something this, like that. I've got this totally original idea. He's a drow who has two scimitars, hmm. and go, and he's, he's different than all the other drow. Yes. 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 <laughs> yeah, yes. So sometimes, in this case, it's because he's evil. Sometimes there's a very specific <laughs> thing that maybe can be overdone. Even even riffing off of it can just it can sort of become tired. Yeah. Well, I think I what, is the word I think what I think what both Colin and Daryl are talking about here isn't so much ah crap. My microphone just attacked me. Um, <laughs> That's not what I was talking about. So maybe this new microphone doesn't like me that much. Uh, in- Someone call Michael Bay. The new Transformers film begins in Daryl Mott Jr.'s house. <laughs> My microphone just came up and popped me in the nose. Uh, anyway, uh, what they're talking about is less about actually, you know, taking something and kind of doing an homage to something by putting it into their game. They're talking more about using that as inspiration, as sort of a jumping off point for the thought exercise. And the end product is going to be still have some of those same tropes to play on, but is going to be something that's completely different because they're basically 
hammering the crap out of it to get it into a new shape as they're trying to fit it into the genre and the story that they're trying to tell with this world. Okay. Does that sound about right? Uh, yeah, sure. that's reasonable. Sure. Well, I think okay. it depends It depends on the product, too. So, like, uh, what, My Little Pony, I'm looking at the, the card game right where I'm sitting here, it's a much more self-aware, pop culture-savvy property. Uh, so I think if they were to do, a say, a dark, Die Hard episode, um, they'd go all out. <laughs> you know, it, it would be an homage. It would, it would be, now it's the part where we strap a terrorist with the C4. Okay, that like wouldn't the, happen. The paintball episode of Community. Yes. Although I don't, I don't know if those were specific scenes for Community. Ho, ho, oh, they, ho. They, oh, yeah. Now okay. I have right. friendship. <laughs> <laughs> no, they they ripped off a lot of scenes directly from Die Hard and uh, okay. Rambo, well, especially. We, the, we, we talked about Die Hard a lot in uh, the, <laughs> the gaming and film episode, so let's. Well, it's, let's, it's that time of year. It is. It is. It totally is the Die Hard time of year. But let's let's try really hard to not Die Hard and <laughs> and focus a little more well, on here's, our. Here's here's here. a question I'd like to throw to you guys on this topic. Uh, what about something like Ravenloft, where there was a lot in that system. Some of the most iconic characters from it, like uh, Strahd, like uh, Adam, right, 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 right. are pretty much carbon copies of traditional fiction. Strahd is a Erstat's Dracula. Adam is an Erstat's uh, Frankenstein's monster, for example. Mm-hmm. So that's it is really, really obvious what they're doing, even if they changed enough of the details that it's not actionable. Sure. To use a legal term there, but uh, what about something like that when it comes to world building? Is that going, in your opinion, too far, or not not dissing Ravenloft at all for this, but using it as an example? Well, if there was only someone here who had worked on, you know, a setting that had Frankenstein's monsters and, and vampires and things <laughs> in it, uh, yeah. it's, it's, well, it's truly a shame. Yeah. Uh, wait, wait, wait. No, totally. I've done that. <laughs> actually, Daryl and Colin are helping me do that. Uh, to be to be clear to the listeners, actually, Daryl... Um, did in, did in fact work on the world building for Accursed, and Colin is in fact uh, doing an adventure for it. So, plus I worked on Ravenloft. Plus he worked on Ravenloft, so he's the perfect guy <laughs> to answer perfect. this question. And the answer is, I think it depends on the property that you're talking about. Um, for you know, for something like Ravenloft, there is almost an expectation that you're going to be hitting some of these these beloved tropes, um, and and it's okay to do it there because people, you know people kind of expect it. I mean, one of one of the adventures I wrote there was basically just Hound of the Baskervilles. But for other settings, let's take let's take say Birthright, you know, we can't just I we're obviously influenced by uh by by Tolkien and Lord of the Rings there, but we couldn't just be like, okay, and now here we've got these, you know, we've got the elves and we've got the dwarves and um so I we we had to shove it, you know, two or three degrees aside so that we could say, okay, this is actually you know, this is our own thing now. This is a thing that we can put our own stamp on and say that we made up this world. But it has the flavor of its material that you that you used as your inspiration. Exactly. It does have some of that flavor. Um, and That's where Ravenloft is using those tropes, is to have the flavor from those horror, classic horror things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, uh, that's, that's a really good point to talk about. Like, if we're going to... If, if someone is listening to this show and they're like, well, how do I create a world? They're going to say, Mr. Hardy, what is the first place? Where do I start to build a world? Characters. Well, two places, I guess. Uh, characters and conflict. Because if you... The two things are very closely intertwined. Because uh, you don't want to have a world without conflict. 
because um, that's, that's boring. And then the characters are often defined by the conflict. So if there's, I don't know, rebellion against the evil empire, for example, you know, are they rebels? Are they imperials? Are they just merchants trying to make a living somehow caught up in between? Are they, uh, I mean, just it's very broad strokes, you know, the, where the characters are defined by the, uh, by the conflict. And of course, I'm assuming, you know, R RPG world building here, uh, other products. No, we're talking about RPGs rules, right but, now. Right. So characters in conflict within the context of what kind of adventures do you want the characters to have? Would you would you shorthand that to tone maybe? I I wouldn't, but okay. I can see how you'd get there. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so it's related to tone, but it's not quite exactly tone. Right. Okay. Because I, mean, I, I think I think tone is not specific. All right. I don't think I don't think it's specific enough. Mr. Um, McComb, where do I start as a world builder? Well, I'm going to go back to the you know what is world building and it's creating the shared imaginative space so i, I think the the first thing you have to do uh, this is this is the way i approach it is i ask myself one second i have a small child walking in that's a very odd question to ask yourself <laughs> <laughs> that might explain a lot about planescape though okay <laughs> where did this small child come from is the first question <laughs> Every time I start a new world, it's, where did this kid come from? <laughs> Create a new world, one family at a time. <laughs> um, so now the, I knew Colin McComb was prolific, but I had no idea. <laughs> yeah. You should see what winds up in the tissues. Wow. Whoa, sorry. Too much? Okay. <laughs> okay, so anyway, the, uh, the, the first question I ask myself is, is, is based around, you know, the, the shared imaginative space. And that is, what are the stories that we're going to want to tell together? You know, what are the things that I'm going to want my players to walk away from with this world and say, this is the thing I remember? That's basically where I go from there. So once I have that figured out, then, you know, just like Daryl, I say, okay, characters, conflict. Uh, I figure out the the broad scope of the world, is it going you know what the metaphysics are, and then I can get you know really detailed with the geology and so forth. But I, I think it's I think it's more important to figure out the you know the narrative arc that you want in this world. And Mr. Mott, since you are a game master, not really a designer, does this sound like that's the right place for you to start if you're going to design a world, or where would you start? Well, I would I usually start somewhere else entirely, but because I'm doing it for a different purpose, I'm not trying to create the entire world all at once because it's got to be done for the campaign book that's got this <laughs> deadline. So I, I usually start off a completely different way. I start with f figuring out, first off, exactly what sort of story I'm wanting this world to be used to tell. So that's going to influence a lot of my decisions along the way. So the first thing I want to do is figure out, am I doing something really serious? Am I doing something really dark? Am I doing something light? Am I doing something uh, like epic fantasy heroic? Uh, where am I? Is this going to be a black and white world or shades of gray? That sort of thing. I start pinning down exactly what I'm going to do with it. Then I usually start with wherever I'm going to start running my game. So, for example, using a world that's already been created, Forgotten Realms, if I'm going to start the game in Waterdeep, I'm going to design Waterdeep. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to just, this is the way I do it. I start with, I start small and then start filling in the spaces as I need it. 
because I don't have to have everything done all at once. I can run two or three sessions in Waterdeep and then start having, okay, there's a city nearby that's like this. There's a country over here that does this and just have those broad general strokes. And when the characters start getting into those areas, then I can start filling in the details as needed, which is, like I said, completely antithesis to what you want to do if you're writing for an actual game, because you can't really do that unless you're specifically releasing it that way, like a city at a time or something like that. Well, there's sure. which that would be kind of a cool way to release there's, a, there's, in the digital age. I think there's no reason why you couldn't actually start a world and just release a, a part of it at a time. Um, yeah, and that's that's a really practical way to go about doing it. And I would have to say what's interesting here is I'm hearing a lot of the same stuff that I do um, as, a, as a designer, too. Um, I learned uh, from, from a young age, I started out playing a, a lot of Palladium books, and there's, a, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's actually a Rifts book where they talk about like, their approach to world building, which is very, they call it top-down design, and they describe it as you know, you know, the, the very wide-angle lens look at the world, and then you zoom in and zoom in and zoom in. And uh, just like... Daryl and Colin were saying about the conflict and the characters and you know what kind of what kind of story you're trying to tell. That's for Accursed, that's what I was I was working on there. I was saying, well, I want to build a world where the monsters are the heroes, and then the conflict was they're fighting witches. You know, and it just kinda it, it, and then I did the the zooming in, you know, from there. So uh, that's it sounds like we're all we, we kind of all have a very similar idea, just maybe different uh specific uh implementations of that idea. So, I would not disagree with that assessment. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, that's good. I mean, it, it's, maybe it makes for a little bit of better radio if we, we had a, a bitter disagreement, but that's okay. <laughs> I'm okay with that. Um, so now that you've started, now that you've got these, these basic stuff nailed down, uh, what's your next step? Anybody wants to join <laughs> hmm. Let's say we've got the idea, we've got the characters we got the conflict um where we go from we figured here? out we figured out that we want to tell a story about evil witches who cursed monsters and the players well, of it, monsters it, 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 it's awesome that you guys are For talking example, about cursing but let's not use it it's one that all, it's one that we're all familiar with right. and it's rather new and it's uh just been out a couple of weeks at the point this podcast's airing so That's, it's that a is good true. one to talk about but it is I the think, new hotness okay very well what i would recommend you talk me into it is uh, th- that's when I start start thinking about points of interest, uh, start moving into geography, uh, and this is this is where I talk about story worlds. You know where it, where it's where the world building it starts from a, a narrative base, from a from a story base where it's very where it's not even, it's not specific. You know I'm not talking about you know the Misty Mountains or the Shire, uh, or I'm, I'm talking about you know. Uh, forces of darkness and 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 epic heroes uh, who are who are opposing this darkness. Um, like, okay, now that we have our basic characters, we have our basic conflict. Now let's now let's look at the where. You know, not that then we start talking about you know uh, specific geography and points of interest and uh, and I think for that for me, you know, then it gets into um, you know. So what what do you, what do you want? You know, do we want Giant city states, sure. City states are cool. I love a good city state. All right, let's have one of those. You know, underground kingdoms, uh, sure. You know, stuff that you know, whatever works for the genre, most you know, and and of course supports that story. Because if we're doing, uh, I guess, Lord of the Rings, we're like, ah, in a flying, uh, flying city state, you know, that's being hauled around by dragons. And you're like, no, 
because that that kind of breaks <laughs> our conflict. You know, the famous Daryl Hardy. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> no. If we're if, yeah, if we have giant city states being carried around by dragons, we don't really need uh, you know, a couple you know barefoot short guys to go lob the ring. So I think what you're saying is, if I'm understanding you correctly, is you're saying that the next steps you take in your world building need to be focused on the narrative, but they need to weave in the themes, the core themes of what your world is about. Right. Well, I think you know, the second step is, is the concrete is the concrete stuff. Because you, know, you start you start broad with the narrative, uh, you know, with, with the themes and the conflict and and the very abstract in in, in the abstract. Um, and then the second the second stage is when you start getting more concrete with it. Okay, Mr. McComb, yeah. what, what do you think is the second stage? Yeah, you know, I'm actually kind of thinking. I I, I do it a little bit differently depending on what the world flavor is. I mean, just like we were talking about with uh, with Ravenloft, you know, it's okay to do homage there, but you've got to do you know more subtle things with other things. I think it depends on what kind of world you're building. Um, you know, in some cases, if you've got a high magic world, then it makes more sense if you're focused specifically on what does magic look like rather than, you know, okay, what does the world look like right now? If you say, okay, what does magic look like? What can magic do? What can it accomplish? Okay, well, you know, maybe it blew up half a continent. Maybe it pulled the moon down onto the earth. Maybe it blasted part of the earth, you know, into the sky. Once you figure out what some of the basic physical laws of the world are, I think you can, or well, you know, basic physical, spiritual, you know, et cetera, metaphysical. Once you start figuring out what those laws are, then you can start painting the world itself. Um, and, and like Daryl was saying, you know, you want to make sure that that stuff fits in with the tone and the themes you've chosen. Um, and you, you also want to make sure that you put, you, you start developing your world where the conflict is or where it's likely to be, because you don't want to be, you don't want to, you know, just do Lord of the Rings with everybody hanging out in the Shire all the time. Yeah, you want to be where the action is. I was going to say, exactly. don't start with the Shire. Yeah, yeah. What well, I mean, yeah, you don't start designing in the Shire, and you don't make right. all the action there. Everybody just sort of hanging out there, and then suddenly Saruman shows up, and they're like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> <laughs> yes, How did the, this happen? The scouring of the Shire, which is <laughs> yeah. possibly the the gentlest term I've ever heard for a bad guy's evil plan being. <laughs> it sounds like they're just cleaning the place up, you know. Yeah. Oh, we scoured it. You know, we just. You yeah. know, Let's put a coat of wax filthy. on it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we just held them down with a wire, you know, with a bristle brush, and got all the crevices. <laughs> Ten thousand doors. Ten thousand doors. There's a lot of crevices. <laughs> oh, silverfish. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. So it sounds like Colin, what you're describing, what you, and and also what Daryl's describing. Um, this this sounds a lot like verisimilitude that you're building into the world. Yes, I and I'm not saying necessarily verisimilitude in the in the sense of uh, you know it's got to be realistic, but it's got to be realistic within the confines of the world. Well, that's why I didn't say realism. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I specifically chose not to use that word. Oh, uh-huh. well, very fancy. Well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> and I'm sure it has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that I put it in the notes that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so very Cespedalian of you. Yeah. Okay. So we're dealing with a couple of chess players here, Darren. I see. Got to be careful. <laughs> well then, here I'll I'll zag. Also <laughs> important. I'll go serpentine. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I said, uh, also important. I think at this stage, while well, you're establishing the 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 laws of the land, as, as it were, the metaphysical laws of the land, 
you define not just you know how it works, but what's cool, you know what's exciting, and what is accessible. Because uh, I think I mean going back just a, a little bit to like the like Strahd in um, in, in Ravenloft and those, those tropes. Those tropes make the setting accessible. You know, you, you look at the cover of a Ravenloft product, you're like, you know, vampire on a on a, on a balcony surrounded by gargoyles. You're like, okay, I know what this is. I, okay, I get it. You know, and, and granted, once you get into it, you're like, oh, okay, so it's not exactly like that. Um, but you know, by 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 dragging out those tropes, you know, and, and, or, or highlighting them, like, hey, this is a game that has this. Like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I like that sort of thing. I want to play that. Uh, and I th- and I think, you know, th- this is a good time to put, put that in there as well. It's like, hey, we have, you know, flying city-states carried by dragons, you know, and, and we're going to highlight that. And be like, oh, it's that kind of game. It's a really high magic game. Cool, cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done with that. So or, you're I, or I guess, I hate that, therefore I'm not going to play it, but... You're, you're saying that once we've identified the tropes, we're going to then highlight them by building, you know, that's the next step as far as what we build into our world. Uh, yeah, you want to make them significant. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and I think, you know, you want to make sure you put your own, enough twist on it so that it's identifiable as your world. And it's not, you know, I don't know, it's it's just another giant city being created by dragons. I don't know, it's in like four or five different worlds. I don't know which one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, yeah. Well, and I, I think I'm going to just ask you guys another, th- another question, we, because we have been talking about verisimilitude. In your opinion, how strong, like on a scale of 1 to 10, um, for your own personal style, uh, how strong do you rate verisimilitude as something that's important to you when you are building a world? 10 for me. 10. It's And again, this is not trying to be realistic. You're not trying to uh, yeah, we're not talking about realism. recreate history. We're talking about verisimilitude. You're trying to create something that has an internal logic to it, where when you're reading the book, you kind you you may not know exactly what to expect next, but nothing you don't want anything in there that's just going to be the hell is this because it it can completely break you out of that world. I mean, I've read pages of debates about the geolo- uh, the uh, the geological formation of the Lonely Mountain. Because it makes no sense from a geological standpoint. But what if it's a, a former dormant volcano? And but it's not described as volcanic. I'm just like, there's a point where you do have to accept that you're going to break away from stuff like that. But the closer you get to something that has its own internal logic that holds itself together, that stays within the boundaries of the genre and the tone that you're specifically creating here, even if it's something that's kind of crossing genres, you want to make sure that it makes sense within those worlds. Like you were talking about the map with the rivers that didn't flow right. Most people aren't going to notice that, but it might irk them. It goes back to something that I learned in film school. It's that bitch in the back row to explain uh, what it is, is in a film, they always talk about, you have to make sure that your sound is completely clean that you don't that you have room tone and this and that because the audience might not notice that but they'll bl- they'll notice it subconsciously and then the little old lady in the back row is going to say that movie was had horrible picture quality because the sound was wrong or something that they're going to they're going to notice it even if they don't notice it and because the lady in the back row complained so much about movies she got labeled the bitch in the back row 
okay, not as good of a funny story as I thought, apparently. But <laughs> but that, that, that's what I'm talking about, is you want to make it as clear as possible. Now, if you do something that does break with that, it's not a bad thing if it makes sense in the world. If you figure out a way to make it make sense in the world, then you can get away with those sort of breaks from reality. It just has to have, like I said, an internal logic. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, you know, I'm... Again, it all it all depends on the flavor of the world that you've established. And if you have established the flavor of your world well, then, you know, you, you can get away with just about anything. You know, I'm in Planescape. Well, okay, let's say, uh, let's go to Wasteland instead, since I'm, you know, playing that a lot. If my little pony showed up there, <laughs> people would be pissed off. And they would be right to be pissed off. Because we have said, this is the tone of our world. And, oh, hey, by the way, here's a cartoon. And they'd be like, come on, WTF, people. This is, uh, this is, this is some serious bullshit you got going on right here because this is not the experience that we were promised. Well, it, because it changes the tone. Yeah, absolutely. But, I say, I'm really, but if you have, like, I'm a re- horse, just if someone has a horse and it's named Applejack, I mean, that's not that big a deal. It's like, oh, okay, you know, it's, it's a neat, that's, that's a, 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 you're brushing it, but you're not, you're not breaking your own tone to include something like that. I just want to say, Colin, I'm really glad to have you on because it's really good not to be the only foul-mouthed motherfucker on the <laughs> so, um, I am. I am delighted thanks, to throw. You I know, think. Yeah. Jesus. Well, it's not that you don't. It just I curse a lot, and you don't really Stop. that much. Yeah, it's true. Our guests typically don't. But um, that's yeah, one thing I was talking about. You can get away with breaks like that if you plant it in the world. If you're going for something where you're wanting cities on the backs of dragons, really, really high magic is everything, lightning train sort of world, you can get away with doing weird stuff by saying, because it adds to that sort of otherworldness of it. But if you're, the more realistic you're trying to do something, the more realistic of a tone, the more realistic you kind of have to try to be. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second, because I think you said a lot of great things, and and I really do agree with a lot of things that you said. But at the same time, I think we're all kind of subconsciously prioritizing the world building ahead of the experience. And I think there's ways that if you wanted to support the experience with the world building, you could actually get away with things that don't necessarily make sense. And I'm going to throw some, some bits out there to, to support my, my argument. Let me interrupt here very quickly and say that this is something that you figured out at the very beginning of your your world building creation is, you know, okay, is this the kind of world where this is the sort of thing that we can accept? Because if it is something that you can accept, that you I, you should have figured it out well ahead of time when you were starting the whole, you know, starting the whole exercise off. Um, but if, you know, if you've said, okay, we're going to be a grim, dark, you know, Batman, you know, Dark Knight Returns kind of fantasy, and I'm talking, you know, about the, the Frank Miller thing, and we're going to do that, and then, you know, you throw in My Little Pony again. That's not the sort of thing that you have earned. Well, okay, and, and I'm not talking about juxtapose. I'm not talking about breaking the tone. Right. What I'm talking about is specifically including things in your world building that don't make sense and don't need to make sense. And I'm, I'm going to kind of explain what I mean because I, I realize that's a very uh, difficult concept to grasp in just a few words that I've given it. Um, a good example is, let's say I want to run a game of Warhammer 40K. And in Warhammer 40K... There is this 
particular elements of their world building that they have just decided doesn't make any sense and doesn't need to make any sense and will never make any sense. Um, they, there is this other dimension called the warp, and everything having to do with the warp makes no sense. That's literally written into their world building. And it's okay with I, I'm okay with it. I think anyone who plays Warhammer 40K is okay with it, but they made that conscious decision to allow it in. And it, it has tropes and tones and ties to things like Michael Moorcock's view of chaos and things along those lines. So if you're going to build that into your world, I think I, I want to say you really need to be very, very careful if you build something in your world that doesn't make sense. But it's it's not a... I, I want to make sure make our listeners understand it's, it's not the worst thing in the world that, oh my god, this thing doesn't make any sense. Um, know the rules before you break the rules. Yeah, that's, that's a fair point to make. If, if I wanted to run a game and use... Let, let's say I'm running a convention game, right? And I, and I want to use just a, a common point that we all understand to get you guys on board with my idea. I'm going to run a game set in Dark City from the film Dark City. Yes. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all because <laughs> there's a city just sort of floating in space and nobody, nobody knows or, or cares why that is. But that's part of, like, the experience of Dark City, if you see what I'm saying. So in this case, the the world building is supporting the experience. And I think under those circumstances, it's okay to have things that aren't, that that break that verisimilitude. But again, know the rules before you break them. Well, again, again, you're you're setting up a, I I think we're all on the same page here. It's just that possibly we're having a little bit of disagreement of terms, you know, because I am all about having unanswerable questions in things. Um, you know, I, we had the had the Lady of Pain in Planescape. Yes. And, and people would be like, can you just stat her up? And we'd say, no, she will never be statted. <laughs> there is, you cannot know about her. Rule that number is, one is don't fuck with the Lady of Pain. Yeah, Thou shalt not fuck with the Lady of Pain. <laughs> the, I, the, the basic rule we had in-house was the Lady of Pain is sacred. She will not be defined. She will not be... You know, set into any boxes, she breaks all the rules that we want because she is at the core of the setting. You know, and I think that if you have something like that, I mean, Dark City, the city was at the core of the setting, so it just okay. This is the thing that we accept. So the dark powers in Ravenloft. Yeah, that's the thing we accept. We don't know what those are. You know, or uh, or if we're talking about Numenera, you've got you know, this is the ninth world. Well, what were the previous eight? <laughs> Who knows? They were well. The sixth was Shadowrun. The fourth. Was <laughs> well, 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 well. <laughs> so I, I'll, I, I'll I make think you're right. And, and, it, and it's, this discussion is good because we are defining points. And I and I'm just trying to do it because I don't want our listeners to get to think that you know some of the things that we're saying is is the only way to build a world. That's all oh, I'm God, getting no. at. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> but if they want to do it right, <laughs> Listen to the yeah, I mean, no, nobody's going to like your world if you don't do it the way we tell you. But <laughs> you know, you, you guys go ahead and do your own thing. That's right. That's right. All right. Now, I, there is one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, which is this is something that again comes in because I'm not doing this professionally. I'm running a home game, and right around this point where you guys are talking about uh, starting to do the locations and working out your characters, this is the point where I have to figure out for me: Am I making a world? Or am I making a campaign, which is two completely different things? Yes, it is. Uh, the I, I can think of a very good example of a professionally published world that was built through a series of campaigns, and that is the Pathfinder world. Uh, Galo- Gal- Galarian? Galo- uh, g- g- thank you. Sure thing. I'm going to get lynched for that one. But Also uh, Dragonlance, think- <laughs> Forgotten yeah, Realms, it- etc. 
Well, kind of, but not ne- not nearly as much as uh, the Pathfinder world was built through their adventure paths. Each True. one focused on a new little area and explored new little parts of it in terms, and the tones would change wildly depending on which part of it you were in and which p- adventure path you were on. Did you just uh, did you just say that Pathfinder developed itself more through adventures than Dragonlance did? Because that's a bold claim, sir. I can't say I've never run any Dragonlance adventures. I've just read the novels, so okay. <laughs> so I, I, I will not I will not say that, but I, I'm, it's the one that I am most familiar with. Let's put it that way. All right. Um, but that is the way to do it, and that's a way a lot of game masters at home are probably going to approach it. Is you have to think: Am I building just the campaign? In which case, you you kind of get a little bit more tunnel vision because you're not focused on the entire overall world. You're just focused on what the party is going to experience as they go through, and it's a completely different beast. And it's a completely different way of approaching it so it's something you have to keep in mind if you are trying to make a world if you are trying to do world building unless you're doing something like pathfinder and apparently dragon lance did uh you kind of, you have to approach a completely different way and it's the way that these guys are describing it. i you know in, i don't in my, I, that's I don't, the way i i don't disagree with that i think i think all of us are approaching it from the standpoint that you're building we're building worlds towards the goal of making that part of an experience and the experience is, in your words, is the campaign, right? I mean, we're not we're not just building worlds to you know put in our little our our, our little uh, uh, booklet and, and slide in our, our bookshelf, right? We're building worlds so people can play in them. And you know, you you're you're, I, I think maybe it's just a question of scale, really, is when you talk about like when you say it's, designing it for a campaign as opposed to well, what, whatever what is, the other it's, alternative. It's not be. designing the world for the campaign. It's are you designing the world or are you designing the campaign? Because uh, designing the campaign is going to be completely different the way you're approaching it. And because in a world you're not just focused on okay these are the events that are going to happen over the campaign. I need to fl- I need to work. This is what's happening. You have to be able to account for multiple campaigns that may run. In that world, okay. Well, that's right. fair. Why, yeah, fair one point. of them. One of them, you're building an actual world, and in another one, you're building a narrative arc. So. Okay, yeah, that's that's exactly. a fair point. That's a fair point. And just to be clear, we are ta- you know for tonight's episode, we are focusing on the the world rather than. The, uh, um, but that 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 reminds me. Uh, did did you guys ever read Lord of Light by Roger Zelazny? No, I have it's not. Sitting in my stack with about thirty other books to get to. Okay, I, I would recommend putting it up at the very top of the stack because it's probably one of my favorite all-time books ever. But, well, okay, I guess it's not going to mean anything if you guys haven't read it. God damn it. All right, hey, you know what? All right, Never fuck mind. it. Fuck that story. I'm done. <laughs> you can go ahead and tell. Go ahead. Some of our no, listeners, some of our probably listeners have probably No, it. no, it's, it's ruined. Okay. Well, just because we're plebeians doesn't mean our <laughs> listeners. Philistines. Okay. So anyway, this is a, you know, this is a story about, you know, gods and technology and, you know, a, a war that sweeps across centuries. Um, and at the end of it, it talks about, I, spoilers, at the end it talks about how Sam went off to another continent on this world. And it's like, holy shit, this is just a campaign right here. It was uh, I, this, this richly imagined, hugely awesome world and then it's like oh man this is just like one of the stories that's happened here in this thing and i think that that has played a huge part in how i approach how i approach developing worlds which is that you've got to have really cool stuff concentrated but you can have a lot of different pockets of that stuff concentrated all over the place so it's you're you're saying you know keep keep in mind the scale 
yeah. uh, when you're t- when you're building your world. Well, and also you know scatter cool all over the place. Absolutely. <laughs> scatter cool. I like that. I like that. Put that on the motivational t- on the motivational poster. So <laughs> one little thing sticker that, above the computer. Scatter cool. Whenever I'm reading a, a campaign setting, whenever I'm thinking about a, a world to run a game in for a role playing game, um, one thing that always is is of importance to me is uh, white space in a world. I want to ask you guys, and I'd like to start with Mr. Hardy, because he's been very quiet lately. Mr. Hardy, what would you say is the importance of white space when you're designing, when, you're, when you are world building? Well, that, that's, obvious, that's where the, uh, the game master can make it his own and, and actually uh, t- run with what, you, what you've given him. Uh, and, and it gives, gives the players room to, to mess around with too, you know, because if you establish that, I don't know, you know, so and so is the king is the the king here, and the whole camp, the whole campaign, you know, it's the the Lady of Pain, uh, you know, the, the, well, the players can't make their mark uh, taking on the Lady of Pain, you know, but if you have uh, some white space, you're like, well, there's some lords and ladies, and they're uh, here, are their stats, and you know, knock yourselves out, guys. Um, it, it gives the it gives them room to make their own stories, tell their own stories. Yeah, let's let's define white space, and I think you actually just did. It's, it's a place to, it's a place for the the players and the GM to tell their own stories in the context of the world that you've created. Right. It's, it's kind of where the the designer passes the baton to the game master here, or, or the pencil, perhaps would be a better metaphor. <laughs> here, okay. you figure it out. Uh, I think I think that's important because uh, there are different. You know, different game masters have different things. I mean, they're they're probably. I, I assume there are those who're like, awesome. Here is this this country, this city, you know, this planet is written up in meticulous detail. You know, every every square mile of this place is uh, is completely spec'd out. Fantastic. I don't have to, you know, I don't have time to make stuff up. Great. It's all right here. But then you have the other other game masters who are like, well, don't don't hem me in. You know, maybe I don't want to tell the stories with with these characters and, and this these exact locations that you that you have uh, specked up. Um, is there someplace else we can go with this? Okay, Mr. McComb, yeah. what what would you say about the importance of white space? Well, you know, I mean, I, I've had a similar experience with you know people writing in and being like, oh, what's happening over here? It's like I don't know. We left it blank on purpose, man. <laughs> now we we want you guys to go crazy not feel like you know it's something that we're going to define for you and i i think it's important to have some of those places but there's there's always the always the danger that somebody is going to look at it and say you know we haven't done anything in this area yet and then somebody's going to come running along and ruin it for everybody else <laughs> um you know well, it's like oh well it's canon now guys sorry yeah. So every well, you know every story you guys have is you know we've now just nullified it. It's been obviated. Sorry. Right. I, I've actually had to go back and add white space. Um, I did Carthador, which I, I realized I probably should have mentioned in my in my character sheet. Uh, Carthador is my uh, pulp uh, sci-fi planetary romance uh, Savage Worlds setting that was sort of released at Gen Con. There's a, there's hard copies floating around. There's the, the pre-release. And there's the, the the main nations of the continent are are fairly well defined. Um, I mean, there's not, you know, city by city, state by state or anything. But I realized that I had pretty much carved up the entire continent in that. So I was like, oh, wait, there's... 
and I could just kind of feel the 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 the, the, the pressing walls and the lack of white space. So, um, I like, uh, and then there are border kingdoms between them that aren't on this map, uh, but they're there. You know, small kingdoms, small you know tribes and, uh, and and fiefdoms. You know, too high up in the mountains, too deep in the forests for the for the empire to mess around with. Backtracking after the fact, like, oh wait, I should probably have some of that. Yeah, you should. <laughs> Well, you know, the thing about Whitespace, um, it, it is important to me because I like the opportunity to tell my own stories, but it actually made me think a little bit more about, like, kind of the role of the of the world when it comes to allowing people to take part in it, to have opportunities to, to change it, if you will. And to use Mr. Hardy's term for in his story world, he calls these nodes. And I like to think of them as uh, agency nodes. Basically... When you're world building, for me, one of the things I love to do is put in, intentionally, put in like little parts of the world that are in a state where the player characters can obviously make a difference, can obviously make kind of, some kind of change to it. And uh, I, I want to call out Colin specifically because I think uh, Birthright and Thunder Rift both did this excellently. They both had multiple nodes where you could just look at, in, in Birthright's case, you can literally just look at the map and say, oh, well, we can make a difference here. You know, and, and those are things I think are, are, are a wonderful part of, of world building that are actually very closely related to white space. Yeah, the the problem with... Uh, I, I think white space is really important if you're talking about just a basic campaign setting, but the, the longer any campaign setting goes on, you know, the, the more material you build up, the less room you have to explore in the stuff that you have defined. And eventually somebody is going to be like, okay, well, there is this white space here. And it, it, it becomes, I guess the longevity of the line itself becomes a threat to the longevity of the line because you, you've, got to, you've got to find a way to expand. And, and that's why you wind up with things like uh, with Karatur or Mazpika or Spelljammer or... The original World of Darkness. Well, yeah, that's exactly. what I was thinking. Like, or I, I you just blow clarify. it up. Uh, I want to clarify because I, I was... I was kind of getting ahead of myself, but I, I was basically trying to get to the point to saying that white space isn't necessarily geographical. White space is actually has to do with like the the understanding that the world can change, that the player characters can have an impact and an agency on the world. Because there's there's examples we've talked about. Daryl and I discussed the Forgotten Realms at one point, and we discussed the 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 Elminster Syndrome, where mm -hmm player characters just don't feel like they have any agency whether there's white space or not there's just like well Elminster would just fix it you know uh, that's what I'm getting at is I think white space is is a term that doesn't have to apply to just a map it can apply to also this the the nodes as Daryl says the nodes in the story world where character player characters feel like that oh we can come in here and do something about this 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 part of the world will be different because we have taken part in it right does that make sense? I'm, am I rambling? No, it, it, it makes sense. It just, um, I, I don't think it's necessarily, I don't think it's necessarily counter to, to what we were saying, which is that, you know, the, the longer a campaign world happens, the more stuff gets filled in. I, and you might be like, okay, well, you know what? I've set up my, uh, I've set up my kingdom over here in, I don't know, let's say, uh, in, in Anweer. And, <laughs> and then, you know, you know, next month a product comes out and says, and the new king of Van Weir is, and you're like, oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying there. Okay. And that can be a problem from a consumer point of view when it comes to choosing 
a world to play in is, especially with the more well-known it is, the worse it can get where if there's not a lot of white space, that means there's a lot of stuff filled in. And you have that one guy, when you're trying to run Forgotten Realms, who has every single Dritz book, every single Elminster <laughs> book. He's the only person who's actually read the Cleric Quintet. And he will sit there and argue with you over every single point because he already knows it all because he's got all the books. Yeah, yeah. and it's like, oh, well, you have valid points, and I would just like to, oh, I can't do that because Trist already took care of that for me. Okay, well, forget it. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's part of why you keep doing the resets as well. Right. So, and there's also the flip side of the coin where I've heard a lot of people complaining recently about uh, some products that have been coming out where they're was way too much white space where they're saying, okay, what am I paying you 35, 40 bucks for if you're making me do all the work? Well, let me, uh, let's ask another question here because I think we, we're really actually touching on some really fascinating parts about world building um, without, like, we, we, we just haven't really, you know, maybe defined some of those terms uh, quite so well. But um, what you were talking about, Colin, is you're basically talking about a timeline that's advancing and, and things that are changing in response to uh, the advancement of time. Okay, mm -hmm. and there are certain campaign settings that do not have timeline advancement. That literally say, you know, we there is an endpoint, and we are playing, you know, maybe six months, a year, five years before that endpoint. Um, but there is kind of, a, it, and this kind of freezes the status quo to an extent in that it keeps your tropes and it keeps your maybe some of the things like, well, the new king of Van Weir. If if we know that there is still no king of Van Weir in nine nine nine. Uh, AD, and we're not ever going past 999 AD, you know, that can kind of, for lack of a better word, can kind of cryo-freeze some of those elements in place. Sure, but even, you're like, okay, so then, you know, I've got uh, I've got somebody over here in Alamy, uh, and then you have a, you know, then a Realms book for Alamy comes out, and you're like, oh, that's not what we're doing. Well, yeah, you, well you, that's, you, but, okay. Even if you're not advancing it chronologically, I mean, just as you fill in the 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 holes in the information you know the stuff that yeah. the game master the players have filled in for themselves um you know where they said yes there's no king we know there will never be a king uh you know so we're going to go set this thing up and then the, then the end where source book comes out and says yes because it's actually run by the secret society of sorcerers like Oh, <laughs> we didn't have what? Okay. Well, yeah, and that's that. That has definitely happened in the past with different campaign settings. There's, there's no doubt about that. That that is true. Um, from the standpoint of a GM, though, I guess what I'm saying, you know, for for our listeners who I assume they're going to be thinking about, like, I'm a GM. I'm going to be uh, creating a world for my players. You know, what's what's the most important thing for them to understand with regards to white space, or progression of time, or any of those things we just touched on? Uh, that none of it's gospel. Yeah. I mean, they they just because you bought the book doesn't mean you have to use it. Uh, that sounds terrible. <laughs> you, should, you should always buy the book. Thanks for always buddy. You're ruining my business model. <laughs> uh, but I mean, just 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 oh it. You don't have to use it in this campaign. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, nice use the parts you like. I think is what you're saying. Yes, uh, that your story. I mean, I think. I mean, going back to when we very first started, we we're you know. We start the process from from the story, you know, from the characters and the conflict and the tone. And you know, in, in in your own home game, I think that's still the most important thing is your story, the story of your characters and their adventures and their conflict. You know, and and the world exists to to tell that story, to support that story. And so, if 
more parts of the world officially come to light that don't work for that story, then I think you have an obligation to ignore those parts because okay. your story is more important than the, you know, the, the, the backstory that you, you know, picked up at Walden can, Books. Can I just, I, I want to say, I think the experience maybe rather because I, I, a lot of game masters prioritize story over the gaming experience. And I'm just going to, you know, to, to avoid some, some bad inst- sure, uh, sure. experiences yeah. I've had, I would prefer to say the experience rather than the story is the most important part. Uh, right, right. The, yes, the experience of the whole group as opposed to the Game Master's story. I guess. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, in theory, you know, those should be those should be united. Um, yes. But, uh, you know, I, I agree theory. with you 100%. The, you know, what we do as, as game designers is we're, we're creating stuff to help game masters out with their games and you know it's, it's important to recognize what the verb is there we are trying to help we don't want to take over this is not our game we're not like okay colin mccomb says that it's got to be like this <laughs> daryl hardy says you've got to play the game exactly like this and if you don't do that then you're not playing my game um you're playing it you know, wrong that's right you know you, you realize I, we're gonna use that sound clip right <laughs> you go right ahead I, you know, I, but you know I mean, the, the, the important thing is that it's this is not our game we're not sitting down we're not having you know our fun is in creating this and playing in our games but when you're playing in your game do whatever the hell you want if you want to make the lady of pain six squirrels on top of each other's shoulders and floating around and you know chittering under the ropes you go right ahead if you want to tell people what you know, this is your game. If you want to have a King of Van Weir, that's fine. If you want to have My Little Pony and Accursed, you go right ahead. <laughs> none of us, none of us will stop you. Hasbro might, but we will not. <laughs> and that's why it's not OGL. Well, and, and I'm, I'm going to say, like, specifically for Birthright, like, the, the whole idea of the Shattered Empire and the fact that there was still a throne and the throne was vacant, that was, to me, that's one of those, those as I saying, those agency nodes. You were kind of obviously saying, I'm providing you with this point where is you as a player of characters, you can reunite. This is the goal. You know, this is one of the things you can do is reunite Anwire and Weir and become the new emperor. Yes, that was that was exactly what we were trying to do there as well, because that, that was the that was the thematic point of the whole thing, which is we are getting out of your way and giving you the tools to create an epic story for yourselves. Right, and that's what I'm getting at, is like when you're world building, and I like to see those agency nodes pop up, that's, I'm just giving people an example of something I thought was, was really well done, so there's oh, that. thank you. Thank you very much. So I think we've, we've, we've definitely covered white space. Um, one question I think it's a really good one to have, especially for, um, all of us are game masters, and we've all been players as well, so I'm going to pitch this first to Mr. Mott, but what role do you think players have? in world building, as opposed to the Game Master? Uh, um, <clears throat> I have a very specific viewpoint on this, and it's counter to what a lot of games out there are doing right now, where there's a lot of them that actually give a lot of that world building and adventure design to the players specifically, so they can feel like they're more part of telling the story. I'm not a fan of that. Again, this is just my personal taste on it. I think that it's the Game Master's job is 
mostly the world building. And if you're one of those people who kind of want to shove some of that off, that's fine. I actually did that with one of the worlds that I made uh, for a fourth edition D&D game I ran. Uh, I'd set up a wiki and I just, here's where we started. Here's the kingdom we started in. Here's the city we started in. Here's a few things that I've kind of done so far. And they're very like broad brushes. If you want to, you guys, here's the login and password for it. Go in and fill in these sections to fit your character or fit what story you're wanting to tell. And one of my players ran with it and he took uh, this sort of tribal uh, nation that I had that I wasn't going to do much with in the first like several games. And he went through and created this big, huge chunk of the world that I ended up using. And it was really cool the way he did. He, he picked up exactly what I was doing and he ran with it. And that was really cool. But every other experience I've had with anything like that, it usually that's when you get those big breaks and verisimilitude is when you let the players in on it, especially if you're running the game and they don't necessarily, they may not know what your end game is. They may not know what you're going for right off the bat. So they may take things in completely wild directions, which is why I'm typically not a fan of it. But, uh, in terms of overall, though, what you guys are talking about in, uh, with player role in world building when it comes to a game design perspective, I'm thinking along the lines would be either one of the things that I've seen a lot of the companies do every once in a while. They, they did this a lot in the old days, like whenever uh, the presidential election in Shadowrun, uh, when Dunkelzon won the presidency. Spoiler alert. <laughs> but uh, that was a fan-based write-in poll where the they had all the candidates that had been a big block of the adventure that they had done for a while. And at Gen Con, they announced the presidency, who won the election based on who voted at the convention and who mailed in their little slips. Well, there uh, was that hanging doing... Chad thing in Florida, but... <laughs> and uh, then another one that uh, Wizards of the Coast is doing recently, I think it's with the most recent uh, season of Encounters, is they're having everyone write in with what's going on in their section of the game, and it all comes together in the overall story. And it's actually helping to shape the world because they're doing another big cataclysm in Forgotten Realms to kind of hit a reset button. And they're trying to get player input on it. And that's the way they're doing it. So at least that's the way I think that even professional game design companies can have their players involved in the world building. Aside from just leaving these, like like Ross was saying, uh, agent points, I think. Is what Agency node, but yes. Agency node. Uh, th those sort of things. Aside from that, you can even incorporate your players that way. Mr. Hardy, how do you, what would you say for how players can get involved with world building? Well, <clears throat> I think the same way that the, you know, the core, I keep coming back to it, but you know, the, the core of the world is, is characters, you know, char characters in conflict and your, in your tone. And I think the heart of your, as you know, the game master, you know, so that's the world. And then we zoom in on the party and the adventures of the party as as run by the, the game master of the players, you know, again, the heart of that is is the characters and the conflict, uh, which of course will probably be much you know, smaller, more specific, because it's just, you know, these this handful of group, this handful of people going on their adventure. But I think that you can take that even even smaller by zooming in on a specific character who is again shaped by the conflict. And if the player can help define that conflict by creating a part of the world, um, I think in cooperation with the game master, and that's you know where where uh, you know Mr. Mott was saying you you could have problems. Obviously, you have to work with the game master. So it's not 
Yes, and I was raised on a pony farm because I'm actually a pony. No, you can't do that. <laughs> uh, but if, if you want to say something like, yeah, I'm, I've joined this adventuring band because I need to raise 10,000 gold in the next six months or the Slaver's Guild will kill my family. You know, as a game master, you might go like, Slaver's Guild? There's no... Well, there could be. I, I, we have slavery. I, we have guilds. Sure, there could be a Slaver's Guild. That, that's kind of cool. Okay, sure, let's run with that. Uh, but 10,000 is too much. Yes. <laughs> All right. Your family sucks. <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean that. I just we're going to we're going to definitely put that in the show notes. Your family sucks. Your family <laughs> sucks. <laughs> I, th I think we've got a subtitle for the episode now. Oh yeah. <laughs> Great. Great. So, Mr. McComb, what what do no, you think? No, uh, sorry, sorry, I, I didn't I didn't mean to step on Daryl. I just okay. throw in that. <laughs> Daryl, did you have uh, more to say about that? Uh, in, in summation, uh, player <laughs> input good. Okay. In cooperation <laughs> with the game master, there. Your own Mr. personal white space. How's that? Per that's good. Uh, Mr. McComb. Yeah. Uh, every. Every every bit of the game it should be the player's white space. I think. I mean, every everything is fair game for the player to build on. Um, you know, the the GM has ultimate fiat at the table in general. I think, but you know, if I, depending depending on what the game is and how epic the the campaign is going to be, you know, you could say, okay, we're just going to stick with you know with with published canon for this world, and then you guys work within that space, or you can say, you know what, this is our starting point. And then from here on out, you guys are doing everything. And if you want to throw, bring in, you know, little stories that attach onto this. Uh, if you want to, if you want to have the Slavers Guild, uh, you know, maybe you've got, you know, then you can say, oh, Slavers Guild. Okay, great. Well, you know, is there just one guild? Are there, you know, are there competing slavery factions? Uh, you know, and you can, you can just start to build all that stuff off of there just from once somebody saying, you know, two words, Slavery Guild or Slavers Guild. And I, I think that... Players need to have that sense of agency uh, within the world in order to keep them interested in the game. Because I, let's face it, we're not you know we don't play these games so we can have somebody else tell us you know what we're doing. You know that's that's not why we play these. I'm I'm going to call out actually a very recent game uh, that did some things on this very specific topic, and I think it did really really well with them. And that game is called Thirteenth Age. Um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. I am familiar with the name. I have not played it. So one of the things that 13th Age does is it says when you make a character, you get to do a couple of specific things related to world building. Um, the first is you get to say one unique thing about your character. And some of the examples they give is I am the only halfling knight in the queen's service. So you are doing a little bit of world building by establishing how your character is unique. Now, obviously, you know, to assuage Mr. Mott's uh, concerns, you would need to do this uh, with Mr. Hardy's thing in mind, that you're, you're, you're sticking to the tone and the, the conflict and the characters that are important to your particular campaign. But if you stay within those boundaries that you have all agreed on, right, I think that's a wonderful way for a character to do some world building. And it actually goes a little further than that. Um, 13th Age also says you have a background skill, and this background skill is what you did before you were an adventurer. And it does not encourage you to do things like bartender, because bartender is kind of a boring skill. Um, you could put down pirate, which is a cooler skill, but what they really want you to write down is, you know, sailed the, seas, uh, sailed the Sea of Stars with Captain Bloodhook. 
and that's your skill right that's your background skill and again I think that's a really neat way to turn something that's even a mechanic in the game into a, an, a, a point where you as the player can have an impact on the world I think those are really cool and fun ways because to me what what those things are saying is not just I'm a player I'm helping develop the world but you're also saying these are things I want to have come up and be important in the campaign yeah they're in engagement anchors yes exactly oh man you guys are getting really I mean, ludological here i'm gonna say if you drop agency node I'll give you engagement anchors. awesome yeah mr that, hardy really cool. is one of the reasons why i wanted him on the show is because he's got a really excellent uh way to to name all these little things so that's, that's nice okay so engagement anchors go okay yeah well that's it's cool because it gives you like, like from my example the slavers guild uh it, it's your it writs the character in the world and creates you know as part of the background and gives the player engagement into the into the world and some some motivation built in conflict but uh what was really cool with what you're saying there with the 13th age is it gives you is it not just background but stuff for the future you know it gives the gives plot hooks to the to the gm and you're right you know it, it's laying um groundwork for future adventures and i think that yeah that's cool i i agree okay read the coolness well i think uh you know i think the, the appropriate thing at the time because we are we are running a little long in our show so let's let's talk about the the last question i want to throw at you guys regarding to world building is what point do you say it's done where do you stop if you're if you're constructing a world and you say where, you know where where's the point where you say i have done enough What's my target audience? Am I? <laughs> I, I and seriously, it, it makes it, it makes a big difference. You know, okay. am I am I developing a computer game? Because if that's the case, then I can just say, okay, you know, whatever was, is within the bounds of you know the scope of my map here, I don't have to worry about what's going on out here. I can just you know throw rumors and you know tiny little webs and plot hooks out there that are never going to come to fruition. Uh, but if we're talking about a, a Bach era campaign setting, then I need to, you know, I need to actually develop that stuff. You know, within within the within the game uh, for the computer game, I've got to be extraordinarily detailed while I'm right in there. But you know, for for a campaign setting, I can be like, okay, you know, here's a an area that's more heavily detailed, but I've got to get all the rest of this as well. There's a little piece of me that just started jumping up and down with excitement because you almost said boxed set. <laughs> I, yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry. I just I, like, oh boy, almost said box set. I, I know what I, he needs. I know. I was like, I was like, oh wait, a lot of people probably don't get that now. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see it, but there's a tiny tear running down my cheek. Oh, like the Indian. <laughs> oh no. Exactly. exactly. We had boxes. We had maps. <laughs> oh, as was maps. as was the fashion at the time. Right. Sometimes they had dice. <laughs> Mr. Mott. Where do you I stop? Onions on the belt. I, I actually <laughs> would rather hear your answer, Ross, because you worked in a different medium. You didn't have any sort of artificial limitations when you were creating the world for Accursed, because it was a digital product. You didn't have, oh crap, we have to keep this under X page count, so we need to start. Where did you decide on Accursed? Yeah, that's a, that's okay. A, this is enough for now. Well, for me, that's, that's a great question. Uh, because yeah. Daryl and I have both been, you know, okay, you've got 64 pages for book one, and you've got 32 pages for book two, and you've got three-color poster <laughs> map, go. Well, 
okay, so for, first of all, it's important to point out that Accursed was not designed as a standalone product. We were thinking of, we wanted to leave some room to, to make more books for it. So there were certain points where we were like, well, we can do more with this, but we're going to, first of all, see if the Kickstarter succeeds. And if the Kickstarter succeeds, then we have a plan for, you know, for doing that, for doing more things with it. But from the standpoint of just the core book, um, where I stopped is I wanted to find a balance point where I felt like I had uh, given enough of the world building to the reader, to the player, to the game master, so that they can create compelling stories and still have enough of that feeling of agency, that feeling of white space, that they can then take it and move forward with it. So I wanted to find that balance point. I wanted to find the point where I feel like, yes, I have given you a solid foundation for you to build now your own stories. And I didn't crowd you out. I didn't, you know, I didn't uh, just, uh, to you to keep going with the building or the architect, you know, uh, paradigm. I, I, I didn't just fill the building full of crap, right, where there's no room for you to rearrange the furniture. I, I wanted to give you a, 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 a nice enough framework that you could then make, you know, sort of go in and do your own interior design. Ooh. And that's the balance I tried to strike with the, you know, that's that's when I considered so it done. So when, when are you going to call it done when it comes to the additional products, though, as well? Well, if pe- is, it, if well, you... that's that's going to be based on the market. If people <laughs> want, the if money people want more accursed, I will make more accursed <laughs> because I love making more accursed. So it's yes. it's only, in, from a business standpoint, it's only done when people no longer want to pay for it. So there you go. Because there is one, uh, one phrase I wanted to bring in when it comes to where do you stop, and that is painting yourself into a corner. Ah. Yes, this is the famous Rick Priestley point that he made about world building. Um, Mr. Hardy, Mr. McComb, are you familiar with uh, Rick Priestley? No. Sounds familiar, but no. Uh, Rick and Brian Ansel are the two guys that created uh, Warhammer 40,000 in the Warhammer fantasy settings. Oh, God. Okay. And uh, Rick, Priestley. That Rick Priestley. Okay. Oh, Rick Priestley. <laughs> no, I. <laughs> so uh, Rick Priestley had a very interesting thing to say about world building, um, and that is has to do with uh, kind of some of the an- unanswerable questions, like you were pointing out earlier, Colin. Is that he's saying, as a designer, you never want to get to the point where you have painted yourself into a corner in your world. You always want to leave yourself an out. And what he was getting at is he was actually specifically talking about um, the use of an unreliable narrator to describe uh, sections of the world, sections of, sections of the universe, to allow for uh, to, to allow that setting to remain dynamic and change uh, and respond over time. Was was he was saying that? Uh, you know, you can't believe everything that you're told. Um, but I think you can apply that statement that you don't want to paint yourself to a corner into a much broader sense when you're talking about world building. And, and that's, I think, where Mr. Mott was coming from. To answer the question for uh, for Carthador when it was done, and, and that actually was uh, possibly even more than a cursed. It, I was just kind of the lone lunatic... <laughs> Because uh, my, my contract with Reality Blur, it was not a work-for-hire thing, you know, where you need so many pages. It was, yes, you write that thing, and assuming it doesn't suck, uh, we'll publish it. And and it got published, so... Right, so apparently it didn't suck. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the, the upside, or the, the upshot of that is that it is the biggest book that Reality Blurs has done. Really? Uh, because, well, that's cool. And so I think when I, when I like, well... 
I don't say, so, you know, when you know it's done. And for, because the, the way the, the Carthador is set up with the, with the nine different nations, each one has its own feel, its own tone. I mean, they're not, it's not like Torg, you know, wildly divergent. I mean, it's all, you know, still pulp sci-fi, but each, but each one has its own shtick. And so I think when I felt that I could, that a, that a GM could confidently run an adventure in one in one of those nations, you know, like I can ignore the other eight chapters of the book, and I can and I can run a cool campaign just in this one that I felt you know like okay that one is done now if I can you know, get all nine of them to that level, then we're uh, then we're good. And turns out that took a lot of pages. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, heard any complaints, uh, so it'll so far so good. Mr. McComb. Well, I guess I'm going to draw from the experience of Birthright here. I obviously for the box set, which is, you know, the box set, not a, just a campaign setting, but an actual box set. Um, and we had the we had the player's guide. We had, you know, the, the various rules books. What we wanted to do was set up the broad outlines of the world and then really focus on one particular area that had the playability. So at that point, we started approaching it like, like Daryl uh, was saying about the about building a campaign. You know, you, you do the broad strokes at one part, and then you say, okay, this is the part we're building up. And then, you know, once you've got that done, you're done. Well, so I would say that, you know, in a larger sense, you know, from, from uh, the idea that we're all creators, there's, there's probably there's probably a point at which you can say, and, and be and be really serious, that there's these projects are never really done, they're just abandoned. That's any project mm-hmm. creative. Yeah, That's, I, I think I think I, I'm trying to remember who the quote is. Right, but I think I think it's also true for cam- for campaign settings and, and for world building. Even if you're a GM, I mean, I know um, I have an unpublished setting that that I as a GM have run many times called Shadows Angeles, and it is it is constantly sort of still simmering on the back burner, even though I've it's been years and years since I've ran it. Right, so. I think, yeah, it's done, but it's only done as far as the particular goal you're looking at right now. And in the future, you can always come back to it. There's nothing saying that it's forever and ever, amen, will never change, right? I mean, even Birthright got a, a fan update for 3rd edition, which I'm right. proud which to work awesome. on. <laughs> so it, there you go. It, it, official thumbs up. <laughs> All right, thank you. <laughs> Uh, there's going to be a lot of very happy people on uh, Birthright.net to hear that, by the way. So <laughs> Here's a message for everybody on Birthright.net. You guys are all awesome. Thank you. I think we just doubled our listenership for this particular episode. <laughs> all right. There. There is your sound clip for tonight. There you go. <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, please keep going. No, no. I think, well, actually, we're, we're kind of at the last call. The bartender is signaling me, and the, uh, the, uh, the Imperial soldiers are going to be by shortly to uh, you know enforce that curfew. So we had better close out, but we need to, to, again, make sure that our listeners know where they can find you on the web and what your latest thing is that they should be looking for. Let's start with Mr. Hardy. Where, where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, DarylHardy.com. That's uh, D-A-R-R-E-L-L. The right way to spell Daryl. Uh, Hardy.com. <laughs> I'm actually, I've been looking at it throughout the podcast tonight. <laughs> Let me give a plug here. There's a little good stuff on there. <laughs> Woot. There you have it. Seal of approval. Yeah, uh, I, I yeah. almost want to use the new heart joke. Tonight our guests are Colin. His other co his other guest Daryl and the other guest Daryl. Uh, his colleague Daryl so and his other colleague Daryl. Sick of that <laughs> fucking joke. Uh, and, and at least want... the only thing I'm the only thing I'm glad about is the character Daryl on Walking Dead has kind of way Redeemed eclipsed it. that. Yeah, so true. I am I, 
I got no problem with that one. Compare me to a badass redneck with a crossbow. I'm fine with that. Yes, Daryl is cool again. I mean, for the first time. Yeah, so DarylHardy.com. And if you want to support my efforts, you can go buy some My Little Pony CCG, which is not actually aimed for little girls. Um, and, of course, Carthador coming out any minute now from Reality Blurts. Uh, we want to see my world building in action. So, Mr. McComb, where can we find you on the interwebs, and what's your latest thing? Uh, you can find me at colinmccomb.com. It's probably a better bet to follow me on Twitter or let's see, an accursed uh, adventure, which Woo! I'm going to be working on for January. Uh, I've got a Stories and Christmas Promises Adventure Bone Anthology coming up. Uh, there's my Oathbreaker fiction. Uh, then, of course, there's Wasteland 2, which will be coming out sometime in early 2014. Uh, and then after that, will be uh, Torment Tides of Numenera, where I'm doing games and novellas and comics and... It was a very, very successful Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And a very successful Kickstarter means that you've got to do a lot of work. It's true. Oh, yeah. It's true. So I, I want to say uh, we're definitely looking forward to uh, looking at all of that. Colin and, uh, and Daryl, I'm looking forward to seeing your stuff, too. And uh, we want to say, Daryl Mott, that is, and I both want to say we're very grateful to have you guys come on the show. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. It was a lot well, of fun. Fantastic, and uh, it's a it's a it's an awesome thing to have both you guys on, especially to talk about this particular topic. Because I think again, there's very few people I think that would speak more eloquently about it than you two. So, with that, we're going to say good night and catch us next time on the Gamers Tavern. And that wraps things up this week for the Gamers Tavern. Uh, we had a lot of great comments this week. It's really good to hear from you guys. Unfortunately, I'm incredibly pressed for time because a lot of crap's been going on. So I'm sorry, but they're going to have to wait for next week. I would like to thank the grumpy Kelt for clarifying the pronunciation on his name, though. So we'll be pronouncing it correctly from here on out. And I also want to thank our guests, Colin McComb and Daryl Hardy for taking the time out of their schedules to be with us and discuss world building with us next week. We've got not one, but two very special things in store for you. One of those is a secret. You're going to have to wait until next week to find out. I'm sorry. Not really. I love teasing you, but I do have one thing I can tell you. Next week's episode is the first annual Gamers Tavern Award Show. It is Ross and I showing our appreciation for the best in gaming from all of last year, 2013. And it's a doozy. I actually wore a tie for it because it's a special occasion. Uh, not exactly sure why, since this is a podcast and it's audio only, but yeah, like I need an excuse to wear a tie. Anyway. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 license. So until next time gamers, the tavern is closed. Have you been looking for a dark fantasy RPG setting? Are you interested in seeing a new take on the action horror genre? Then you should check out Accursed. Accursed is a setting for the Savage Worlds RPG created by me, Ross Watson, and my good friends Jason Marker and John Dunn. It is a world where the heroes are monsters who fight for redemption against the witches who have conquered their land. To find out more about Accursed, search for Accursed on DriveThroughRPG.com. Accursed is now on sale there and in many other fine retailers for gaming PDFs. Thank you very much and I hope you enjoy Accursed.